0: You know when you have something really important to say? One of those big messages you want to make sure gets through? Let's say you're a parent and you really want to make sure that this time your kid gets the message. One thing you can do is you want to take them to a special place. Sit them down so that they know from the environment that the words to come are serious. When I taught at Groton School in Massachusetts, Uh, an Episcopal boarding school, the school had uh, largely drifted from its Episcopal roots. But one thing that struck me was that whenever there was an important community message, whenever there was something that the headmaster wanted to make sure that the students took seriously, he would hold the meeting in the chapel, not in the assembly hall, not in the dining hall, not in the theater. He would call everyone together in the chapel, and in that space, the students knew that an important word was about to come. Well, if you were a Jew in the first century, and you were among the crowd thronging along, around a rabbi, and he began to march up a mountain, because you knew your Old Testament, you knew that an important word was coming. When I entered Yale Divinity School, way back in the fall of 2004, I made the decision uh, to come out of the closet to people who were there. This was going to be the first time in my life when everyone around knew that part of me. Now, for those of you who've gone through this uh, experience before, you know how nerve-wracking it can be. Uh, And for those of you who haven't, you can probably imagine. I walked on campus. My knees were knocking, basically, with every step I took. What would other people think? What would they say? These were all these people preparing for the ministry and here was something that for some people might be very offensive. I walked around uh, as sort of small as I possibly could. And I remember I went into the first meeting of the YDS Coalition for LGBT Concerns. And again, it took a lot of courage to march across that threshold to go into that meeting. And I walked into that meeting and it was a group of very friendly people, both men and women chatting. And the president there was a guy named Aaron Skripsky, who was a third-year student at YDS. And after the meeting was over, he said, well, why don't we grab lunch? So I said, sure. So we grabbed lunch. Uh, This was uh, about a week later. And Aaron brought with him a manila folder. And he just slid it across the table to me. And in the manila folder were writings of scholars, several of whom were scholars at Yale, talking about biblical interpretation uh, in a way that I had not read before. These were scholars writing about the Bible and saying why uh, the Bible, in fact, is a lot more affirming than oftentimes it's used in in broader society. And I remember sitting there in those first first weeks of school, flipping through those pages and reading through all of this academic jargon. One set of words kept coming through. You are loved. You are loved. There is a place in the kingdom of heaven for you. Now, when I was in Iowa, I I, I know this will come as a big shock to some of you, uh, but when I was in Iowa in my first year, we we made a lot of changes. And and these changes uh, went over better with some members of the congregation than others. One of the changes that the congregation decided, the leadership decided, was to emphasize uh, the United Church of Christ in our name rather than congregational. Uh, The church in Iowa, like this church, came out of the congregational tradition, and a lot of those people, a lot of people in town, when I'd asked them about what congregational meant, they didn't know, Uh, and so we decided to really, we were going to carve out our territory as the progressive Christian voice in Ames, and so we decided to embrace uh, our United Church of Christ identity, and one of the manifestations of that was that we changed the sign on the corner in front of the church uh, to read Ames, United Church of Christ, and took out congregational. Well, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I, I, someone told me that uh, one of the long-term members of the church, a guy named Paul Morgan, was, uh, was unhappy with uh, the direction the church was going in. So I called up Paul and invited him in for a meeting. Paul came in, and uh, it didn't take him very long uh, for him to share his very frank opinion about what he felt <laughs> about uh, taking away Congregational from the name. Now, of course, the great irony here is that, like, again, I am, the, I'm, like, the biggest congregationalist of any minister uh, I know in my generation. And at that time, which, again, I thought was incredibly ironic, I had like, the book about congregationalism, uh, Williston Walker's Creeds and Platforms of Congregationalism on the edge of my desk, not two feet from where he was sitting. Uh, but the irony was lost on him. And... <laughs> so here was Paul really lighting into me. And, and I sat there and listened and took it as one of the things you do as a minister. And uh he said he's like it's not the church that my wife and I had joined and it struck me and I asked him I said how long has it been since she died he said 4 years and he said i miss her every day and he talked about how also like he was having major pain in his in his hip and had a really hard time even just walking around and that sort of shifted the whole tenor of the conversation because I began to see that the conversation was about a lot more than just the name congregational. was a lot of loss that was going on in Paul's life. And so we sat and we talked um, and uh, finished the meeting uh, and I asked if we could pray before he left. And we prayed for him and prayed for the memory of his wife. I like to think that in spite of that radical young minister changing things, uh, that maybe he found a bit of comfort that day. Now, my best friend is a guy named Shelby Condre. Some of you met Shelby last year when he came to my installation to sing uh, and to be a part of the service. Uh, Shelby... Uh, is one of these people who is the most authentic liberation theologian uh, preacher that I know. Uh, When he gets up and preaches, and he's a wonderful preacher, uh, he always preaches from a very strong liberation theology perspective. That is, preaching from the perspective of those on the margins. Um, And Shelby is someone who has such a strong feeling because he knows it firsthand. Uh, He grew up in very uh, uh, impoverished circumstances. Uh, He was constantly moving around Uh, He's also someone who, his uh, ethnicity is half Mexican, and he faced a lot of discrimination as a result of that in various parts of his life. So he has deep sympathy for people who experience any kind of discrimination. And one thing that he is, he is the most hardcore feminist of anyone I know. And he's someone who... uh, you know, when I, whenever I would reflect the general sexism of society in something I say and inadvertently come across as being sexist, Shelby was the first person to call me out, uh, and he had no hesitation in doing that. Now, Shelby is someone who, way back in 2008, was uh, one of the strongest supporters for Hillary Clinton I've, I've met. Uh, I mean, all, when everyone was talking about Barack Obama this and Barack Obama that, he was all for Hillary. And in this election, 2016, it was like, turned up even more. Uh, Almost every Facebook post that he would post up was something aggressive about Hillary. Whenever there was the sexism in the campaign, he would just go ballistic on his Facebook page, and all of his friends who all agreed with him would all, like, like. (laughs) And on the election day, he was crushed. He was as emotionally affected by the election as anyone else I knew. Because as he interpreted it, as he experienced it, here was a rejection of his great feminist icon. Uh, He was a rejection of policies that would reach out to those in the margins and he felt it deeply and very personally. And had this wonderful text exchange with him about eight days ago. Because Shelby, even though he doesn't make much money, he saved up and he bought a plane ticket to go uh, to the women's march in DC. And there he was marching on the street half a million or a million people who felt the exact same way that he did. And he read the words that were on those signs. He saw the affirmation of women's rights. And he just felt whole again. And he texted me and he said, this is the first time i felt normal since election day. He sent a picture and he posted it on Facebook. And I love the picture because there is someone uh, who is indeed filled great sense of satisfaction and a sense that there's hope. One of the best known and loved spiritual writers of the last 25 years is a woman named Anne Lamott. And Anne's uh, most popular book is a book called Traveling Mercies, which came out in 1999. Now, Lamott begins Traveling Mercies, telling a little bit about her early life, and then uh, and then she talks very frankly about her struggle with alcoholism. She describes about how at uh, how this point, stage in her life, she was living with a friend, uh, doing some writing, because she's a writer, doing some writing, and uh, drinking very, very heavily every day. Uh, she was also engaging in a lot of other destructive behaviors. And at one point, uh, as sometimes happens, she, she, reached, this, she reached this bottom. She'd been someone who, who, who had been taken to church occasionally as a kid, but something in her moved to, to call up the new priest at the local Episcopal church. So she calls up in desperation. She says, listen, do you have a chance to meet with me? Now, again, she was not a member of the church. She'd never attended the church. Here's this person calling up out of the blue, wanting to meet with this minister. And he said, you know, I, I have things I've got to run out to. And she just sat there. He could sense the desperation in her voice. So he said, okay, fine, come in. But here's this guy. He clears his calendar so he can meet with this woman he'd never met before. And she comes in and she sits down and she just pours out her whole life. She just pours it all out, everything she's going through. And she even admits, I might be drinking a little bit too much too. And uh, she then says, I really don't think God could love me. And the priest responds back, he said, God has to love you. That's God's job. And then as the conversation carried on, he said, listen, you've been struggling enough. I want you to stop praying, stop struggling, and let me pray for you. And as she writes about it, that was the moment that began pushing her on a new direction. All of a sudden, she was able to wrestle honestly, or begin to wrestle honestly, with some of the demons that she had. She could get in touch with her heart. She had that pure vision, and it was at that point where she began to see God. As many of you know, I, I'm someone who really likes history. Uh, I was a history major in college, and when I have free time and I'm not reading theology or being depressed by the news, uh, I'll sit down with a history book. And uh, recently I picked up a book I hadn't seen in years, Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August. It's a great text on, a, on the beginning of World War I. And it brought back to mind uh, all of these stories that I'd read of the First World War especially on the Western Front, and just how horrific it was. I mean, here was a conflict where uh, England alone lost a million men, uh, three times as many as they lost in World War II. Uh, France, again, lost uh, well over a million men. Germany lost several several million men in combat, and the suffering in the trenches was just so senseless. I mean, here were people living in the mud, rats running around, uh, and ever in fear of that whistle that would send them over the top to a certain death in front of these machine guns and barbed wire, and all day long was just the pounding of shells near them. Uh, this is, again, this is where shell shock first came from. People were so traumatized by the, uh, by the horrors of this war uh, that they just physically changed. And I think about uh, what it must have been like uh, on November 11th uh, at 11 a.m. of 1918. The peace treaty then had been uh, agreed in, in theory by the major powers and then they agreed to sign it in a railroad car on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And I just think of that moment. I think of that moment when bells, church bells, would be ringing out all across France and England and Germany. Finally it was over. I think of the emotions that must have gone through the parents' sitting in their houses and with their photographs of their sons might still be at the front or maybe they lost to the front as they heard those bells ring. That sense of peace after such destruction. I can hear those parents say that whoever those people were who were thinking about the peace, they were indeed children. Last week I attended a meeting of the Anti-Defamation League. And this is the national organization that's set up to combat anti-semitism uh, and other sort of hate speech in the country. And especially in the last couple of months there's been a sharp rise in hate speech uh, and the ADL is reporting, you know, a significant spike in hate crime. So I really wanted to be there. I made it I carved it out in my calendar to be there. And the speaker at this ADL event was a guy who's a ex neo-Nazi skinhead. Uh, named Frank Meek, who was telling his story uh, to those who were there. He was talking about how when he was raised, uh, his mother uh, was uh, a drug user. Uh, His stepfather was very, very abusive to him um, and would would beat him up uh, pretty much every day. Uh, They were living in West Philadelphia, which is an area that's predominantly African-American, and he went to a middle school that was almost entirely African-American. And when he went to school, he would again be beaten up whenever he went to school as one of the few white kids that was there. And he tells how how, uh, when he was about 12 or 13, he was up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with his cousin who was involved in the skinheads. Brought out one day to the local bar where uh, they were beating people up. And he says he remembers seeing the fear on other people's faces and it really inspired him. Led him down that path. Well, four years later, he found himself in Springfield, Illinois, and he kidnapped someone, was involved in a kidnapping, and the police arrested him and tried him as an adult and put him in prison. And as fate would have it, as he was in prison, he, one of the things he did was he started playing on the football team. And the football team was all African-American. So here he was playing with these guys day after day. And he was a pretty good athlete, small, scrappy, doing a good job. And two of his closest friends were members of this football team. Now, before he went in, he had a girlfriend, serious girlfriend. And he told people when he first came in that he had a girlfriend. And, of course, their response was, yeah, well, she's probably having sex with other people right now. To push him down as much as they could, just like people have done his whole life. Well, about seven months or so into his prison sentence, he received word that uh, he was a father and that his kid had just been born. He very reluctantly shared this with two of the guys on the football team. He said, I'll never forget, they looked at him and they, they said, What's she look like? It was the first time he'd ever heard a positive comment. Someone about someone showing that they actually cared about his life. He said it stopped him dead in his tracks. Never expected it. He said, well, she looks kind of like me. And then they joked, well, and then, then she's probably pretty ugly with those big ears and big nose. <laughs> and he took it in a lighthearted manner that it was meant. But there was that incredible moment of empathy It was able to break through the suffering that he had gone through that he had been able to eat out. Something about empathy that was able to start changing things. It came with just a simple words. Simple words. Now scholars say that the Beatitudes, these first 12 verses of Matthew, are all about the eschaton. They're all about the end times. Jesus is, uh, you can read one commentary after another. When Jesus is pronouncing uh, these various groups blessed, he's talking about, well, at the end times, these people will be blessed. But reading it through, I I couldn't help but think about the people who felt blessed there at that time. The people who'd been going through various things that then heard a word of blessing coming from the mouth of Jesus and how impactful that was for them then. Reality is at some point or another, we all need a word of blessing. A word of assurance coming from outside. Someone saying that you indeed are blessed. You are welcome in the kingdom of heaven. Hope that you can read through this text of Jesus. Hear those words. Hear them anew. And if you are in need of a blessing today,